Good morning, everyone. If you're just uh, joining us, we're in a series called Good Neighbor. And it's Good Neighbor out of the Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. And the idea behind the series is that by being in step with the Spirit, by walking and relying with the Spirit, by remaining in the vine, we can show a struggling world that Jesus loves them because the world is confused. We see reflections of that in our culture, but Paul clearly lays out a template in Galatians 5:22, our methodology, how we're supposed to do it, how we're supposed to approach the world, how we relate to other believers, how we relate to people outside of the church, and how a life in step with the Spirit filled with love and wonder for our Savior who gave everything, even his very life, how that life looks like and translates into a life lived sacrificially in love for others. So this morning we're concluding the fruit of the Spirit with self-control. And what do we think of when we think of self-control? There are lots of different areas. Some of us will think about our daily diets, right? I wish I had more self-control around 10 p.m. in the evening. And I really wish my wife would stop buying chocolate ice cream so I wouldn't be so tempted at 10 p.m. in the evening. We think about these kinds of areas, what we eat, what we drink, what we watch, how we spend our free time, exercise. For me, what I want to say in this area, what's most relevant is self-control in what I say. For instance, when I'm driving, I used to talk to other drivers. <laughs> yep, some of you still talk to them. That's fine. <laughs> For example, if I'm sitting at a red light and I'm waiting to turn right and the other oncoming traffic has the green arrow and they're turning left, when the traffic light changed to green and so we're moving straight and five more cars speed up and turn left so that if I turn right, what happens is I'm going to be turning into someone, so I patiently wait. What I say is I just start talking to the other drivers, okay? And it's nothing too outrageous. I might say something like, why wouldn't you turn when I have the right of light? Yeah, something like that. Nothing, nothing that, you know, nothing too mean, but something just to let that little kind of spirit in my soul put it to rest. But I don't do that anymore. I don't have those little outbursts anymore. I don't talk to other drivers anymore. And there are two very specific reasons why I don't. And they're sitting right there. (laughs) Their names are Georgia and Joseph. Because what happened... When Georgia was about three, anything and everything I said was just kind of the law, yeah? If I said it, that's how it was. And honestly, I kind of like that. Honestly, I'm still, it makes me a little bit proud inside that my baby girl, just whatever I say. But in relation to this context of driving and talking to other drivers, eh, I had to reel it in a little bit. Because what happened when Georgia was about three, Georgia and Joseph are riding with Terry and I now in the car, and we're driving in Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital of Mongolia. And 
driving there is just literally a free-for-all, okay? You can ask some of the short-termers that have been over. You can, uh, I had to explain over and over again to the people that came over on short-term trips to Mongolia, there is only one pedal in the car, and it's not the brake pedal, okay? So you speed up. You know what I'm talking about. You speed up, you cut somebody off, you swerve in, just go in the flow of traffic, really, in every sense, preventing an accident. But there was one day that people are merging into me, people are cutting me off, and I kind of lost my cool a little bit. And in a little bit of a raised voice, in a heated voice, I, sh- well, I shouted at the other car, stop, because they flashed their lights at me, because they were upset with me, yeah? I said, yeah? I'm not the one cutting you off. They're flashing their lights at me. So I was talking to them. Obviously, I'm in the right, and I said, stop flashing your lights at me. Yeah, there's the baby girl. She remembers. So what happened the next six months every time we got into the car? What do you think my family said? Where are you? Stop flashing your lights at me. So I had to use self-control in some of the things that I say. I don't talk to drivers anymore, okay? At least when the kids are in the car. Yeah. <laughs> As we look at Galatians 5, 23 through 26, I see clearly the how. This is the how of we, how we live, how our life produces the fruit of the Spirit in such a way that the world knows Jesus is alive, that Jesus is who he says he is, that we belong to Christ and crucified our own self-focused motivations. We put aside our desires for Christ's desires. And we continually ask Jesus for guidance. We continually, in a daily dialogue, say, Jesus, where will you have me go? What's next? We are praying. Something like this. Jesus, I'm yours. I'm grateful for the cross and the resurrection. I know that you died for me. Thank you. Today is yours. Where will you have me go? Who will you have me serve? That's the power of the cross. That's what Paul is talking about in chapter 5. And he's telling us in these verses to live humbly, not arrogantly, to be peacemakers and not always be looking for a fight, to be cheering for each other, to be joyful in other people's successes and not be jealous. That's why in Galatians, you'll notice that Paul concludes the letter in chapter 6 by exhorting us to do good to all. And he tells us how. Let us not become weary in doing good. For the proper time, we will reap the harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. May never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does that mean? What does that really mean? It's easy for us to be a Christian here right now. Sunday morning, we're surrounded by believers, which is totally cool. It's an awesome thing. It's a privilege to come together as a body, brothers and sisters in Christ, worshiping our Lord and Savior. I will never minimize that because my family in Mongolia spent years without that. It's awesome. But we're not going to be here inside the walls of Wyzetta all week. We're going to leave Wyzetta and move out to a world, a culture that we see increasingly does not reflect our values. We're going to be faced with a culture that doesn't even respect us and outright will oppose us. 
As we do that, Galatian exhorts us to do good to all. But Paul tells us the way we do it is truly what matters. There's a way. There's a methodology. Only boasting in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do I show self-control to a world and show them the love of Jesus? Paul tells me, it's doing good to all, and the only way I can do it is to focus on the way Jesus did as he came into contact with the world and the disciples. It's by keeping always the mandate of the church, which is to proclaim and manifest the gospel. How do I boast in the cross of Christ tomorrow? I want to quickly walk through some stories Stories of Jesus, because I see great humility in Jesus. I see grace. I see self-control in Jesus. So let's go to the Gospel of Luke. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to spend some time in Luke 22, looking at Jesus. (coughs) While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and a man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? I put myself in this situation. How would I feel? Judas is leading the crowd. He's coming up. He sees Jesus. He comes up and gives him a hug, and then he gives Jesus a kiss on the cheek as the signal that Jesus is the one to be arrested. Jesus has just spent three years of his life pouring in to this person. And this is the ultimate betrayal. It's the ultimate betrayal because this betrayal leads to the arrest. It leads to the beatings. It leads to the crucifixion. And everyone in this garden understands the context of what is happening here. And here's the context because just in a couple verses later, Jesus gives us the context. He puts it in the realm of political rebellion. So everyone there in the garden knew that this was a betrayal of life and death. I've been betrayed before. I've had people gossip about me. I've had people that said they were going to do something but never showed up. Lots of unfulfilled promises, but nothing ever remotely close to what's happening here in Luke I know betrayal on a minuscule scale, but you don't want to know what my impulse is, what my first impulse is when I even perceive that I'm not being treated fairly. I want to lash out. I want to strike out. I want to start swinging. I want to get justice. I want to get revenge. Jesus just asked Judas, are you betraying me with a kiss? We find out in the parallel text from John 18, 5, that this kiss was actually unnecessary because Jesus identifies himself. He comes on and he says, I am. So the actual act didn't need to happen. It seems more like a clarification at this point of Judas' heart, of his inner person. There are no reprisals, no outbursts, no revenge. Jesus is sold out by someone he trusts, an inner circle friend. Let's pick it up and back, back in uh, 49, verse 49. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We find out again in John 18 that this is Peter. I like Peter. I like him a lot. I can identify with Peter. 
because Peter messes up again and again and again. But we can honestly say, I can honestly say that his heart is in the right place. Peter jumps to conclusions. He rushes before he thinks. He says things before he thinks. He lacks a lot of self-control. But what you know in his heart is even though there are times he's afraid, he loves Jesus. He He loves Jesus with all his heart. That's real clear when you look at Peter's life. Peter gets it, and he gets how to boast in the cross of Christ. But here, we see people are rushing toward Jesus, and Peter panics. He takes a sword and starts swinging away, and that's natural reaction. That would be my reaction. If you are coming at Jesus, I'm going to make you pay, and I'm going to make you pay with blood. I can put myself in that place. But it's a little ironic because what has led up to this moment, and it's again three years of Jesus pouring into Peter's life, teaching him this theme over and over again. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go a mile, Go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what will you reward? What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Peter loses his self-control, lashes out with the sword, takes someone's ear off. But here's what happens next. Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Over in Matthew 26, Jesus says this, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? There's a methodology here. There's a way. We see the way of the cross. We see ultimately the way of the gospel. Jesus shows us what it is like to move in this different way. He's going to pay with his life and show the world how much he loves him. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963 talked about the methodology of the gospel, the way of the cross, and he said it in a way that still rings true today. Martin Luther King says this, There was a time when the church was very powerful. In that time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and the principles of our popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. That prophetic voice was coming out of the Birmingham jail 
1963, Martin Luther King Jr. Jesus is arrested. He's taken to the house of the high priest. And for what happens next, for me personally, is some of the most poignant personal descriptions. It reigns, it, uh, I can relate to it. I can relate to what I see happen next and how I relate to the world. Because what happens? Peter starts following Jesus. And he follows him at a distance. And when he gets there, he starts intermingling with the crowd that has gathered. And what we see happen next, people start to recognize him. And they come up to him and they say, this man was a disciple of Christ. And he denies the first time. And he denies the second time. And then we pick it up with the third time where Peter says this in verse 60. Peter replied, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Denied. Jesus is denied in his hour of need. What Jesus could have done, he could have ripped Peter apart. We find that they meet later after the resurrection. They come face to face. There's no reproof at that point. There's no revenge. There's not even dismissal. Because when Jesus comes face to face with Peter, what happens is he reinstates him and charges him with feeding his sheep, with leading the church. There isn't condemnation. There's forgiveness. Jesus is mocked, humiliated, ridiculed. At another point, we find that one of the officials dresses him up in a monarch's robe with the express purpose of public humiliation. I would not have self-control at that point. Then come the beatings, the floggings, the whips designed with metal at the end, designed to rip the flesh off the bone. And then comes the crown of thorns pushed onto his head, and the blood drips down into his face. Self-control, the way of the cross. How would you and I react? Do you see why it matters, though? Do you see why self-control matters? Because something at this point is happening. Something right now on Jesus' march to the cross is happening. People are gathering. This is a real public deal. This is history. This is being recorded. And objective onlookers are coming in, and they're seeing the way Jesus is marching to the cross in self-control. He's moving with grace and humility and love. When people lash out at him and mock him, he doesn't. The way matters. Every response, every action is gracious. Yes, he cries out in pain. There's great physical pain here, of course. But there's grace for those lashing out at him. There's not any self-preservation in his actions. There's not any, I have the truth, you don't. It's all self-controlled. Then, of course, he's brought to the cross. People gamble over his blood-stained robe. They take it. 
They literally take the clothes off of his back. They gamble, they mock him, and then there are the nails, and then the cross. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I would never have prayed like that. That's self-control on a whole different level. People are watching this. They are seeing how Jesus is moving forward in grace. They are seeing how he is dying until finally. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Self-control is the way of the cross. That's the gospel. Jesus did nothing wrong, and this criminal recognizes it. And it is seeing how Jesus dies and proclaims that Jesus is king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He sees Jesus' true power. And then there's the last testimony from outside, from an outsider of the cross. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. I will tell you this, because of the way Jesus died, because of his life lived out in compassion and mercy for others, because of the time he spent with sinners, never compromising the truth, but meeting with them face to face and always showing them the love of the Father, because of the way my Savior marched to the cross in grace and self-control and ultimate sacrifice. I can say because of all these things, I can stand before you and say with all my heart that I, George Kennedy, believe. I believe in the way of the gospel. And it's changed everything for me. It's changed the way I want to live. The way matters. How we live matters. Because the world is watching us. This is a conclusion of our Fruit of the Spirit study in the Good Neighbor series. How does self-control, the way we live, play out to our neighbors today? How does the gospel look in today's culture? How are we good neighbors to those who ridicule us, to openly oppose us, to say those that persecute us, to those that say, you know what, your values don't matter? I think the last couple years, and particularly this last year, have brought many things to the forefront. It's an election year, and many things have come up. Christians are asking more questions than ever before, and the world is asking more questions of us than ever before. A year ago, the Supreme Court ruled gay marriage as a right nationwide. Target and other organizations have transgender bathrooms. Three weeks ago, a man pledging allegiance to ISIS shot and killed 49 people. Civil war has ravaged Syria, displacing around 14 million Syrians, many of whom have fled their country. What is our response to the LGBT community? What's our response to Muslims? 
Christians are processing all this stuff swirling around during this election year. The political landscape has changed. The moral landscape has changed and is a spin away from any God-given standard. So how do we live in this cultural context? How did we get here? I think it's the transition from being the moral majority to a cultural minority. The way now more than ever matters how the church relates to the culture and how the culture affects the church matters right now. Now we must not capitulate to culture, nor must we separate from culture. It's a different time than when I was a kid, and I think every generation likes to say that. Back when I was a kid, it was more black and white, less complicated. But I don't want to go back to that time. I think about my kids. My kids are going to be faced with friends, teachers, the media, popular culture, telling them that all sorts of things are okay. What's our response? What, in, what are Terry and I going to teach our kids? We're going to teach our kids John 3, 16 and 17 as a way of life. For God so loved the world, they gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We're teaching our kids to hold on to that, to sacrifice for those outside of the promise. I think one of the mistakes of the church is that the church has forgotten that we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Even as Christians, we think that we can do it on our own and in our own power and our own strength, and we try and try and try again. I'm going to teach my kids a biblical doctrine of sin, of moral depravity. I'm going to teach my kids about identity, because all sin, all sin is a rebellion against identity. All sin is related to identity. We want to be something other than who God created us to. We want to, be glorif- we want to glorify ourselves. We want to do it by the sword. We want to do it in our own methodology. We ignore the cross. It's not the gospel. I'm going to teach my kids that the cross is a better way. That out of Genesis 1, 27 and 28, they are image bearers of God. That they are valuable in their created identity. That God created them for a reason. That God created the way they are for a reason. But also as image bearers and followers of Christ. They are to show the world God's characteristics of mercy, love, and self-sacrifice for others. What is the purpose and mandate of the church? We are to proclaim and manifest the gospel. Now more than ever, we must remember who we are. We are followers of Jesus, and Jesus has created a new humanity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's us. That's the church. The new humanity embodied the gospel. This gospel culture supersedes all earthly cultures. It impacts and influences kingdom of this world cultures. My mandate is to proclaim and embody the gospel. I'm called to self-control as I engage my neighbors. I'm called to the way of the gospel. I'm called to the cross for their sakes. It's vital for the church to remember now that it's not us against them, but rather it's us for them. What should we do? Walk in this together. Not fearfully, but honestly. Are we going to make mistakes? Yes. Am I going to make mistakes? Yeah, trust me, I am. And this morning, in 30 minutes, all we could do is set the table. 
just look at the tip, and the tip doesn't do justice. But I prayed for this word to be spirit-filled. I prayed for it to be unifying, to be hopeful, to be practical. I sought counsel. I do know one thing. Most of anything, 99% of getting anything right is just showing up. That's our heart. Wyzetta has a heart for people who do not know Jesus. We have a heart for one body of brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a heart for the truth. We have a heart for our youth. So we want to show up. We are the hands and the feet of the gospel. Do we have all the answers for what's ahead for America and what our Christian response is to the culture we face? No, we don't. But we're going to move into it. And we're going to move into this together. We have an outreach opportunity In response to my earlier question, what is the Christian response to the Muslims and Islam, to what's happening around the world, we're going to partner with World World Relief, which is an evangelical partner of the United States government. They have influence in public governments uh, concerning refugees, and here locally in Minnesota, Arrive, Arrive Ministries. We're going to partner with Arrive Ministries and adopt a refugee family. We're going to show up. How it will look, what will happen, we have some idea, but we don't know everything because it gets messy. When other cultures come together, it gets messy. When people are fleeing from war and murder and rape, it gets messy. But I believe that that's our answer. That's our Christian response. We're going to offer the world the creative, creator-designed, beautiful alternative to the current reality that the culture reflects. We're not going to bemoan the world for acting what Paul told us the world will act like. We must remember one thing. God is sovereign. God rules. God lives. God became incarnate, shows up with us, and rejoices with us, and mourns with us. Shows us how to live. Jesus rose from the dead. There's no other worldview that can claim that. And I have hope. I have great hope because what happened with existentialism, the worldview that opposed Christianity during World War II, what was the voice of the evangelicals that came out? C.S. Lewis led it, and he said he acknowledged what was happening, the great pain, and how the church had before leading up to World War II not given the world honest answers, acknowledged the pain. But C.S. Lewis said there is pain, there is hurt, there is death, but the power of the cross is the way. And what happened? We saw revival. Billy Graham did the same thing. When we had the New Age movement come out of Buddhism and Hinduism, and he was answering that when everything was relevant. Jesus, Billy Graham said, you know what? Relative truth doesn't work. The truth of Jesus Christ works. And what have we seen? What have we seen come out of that? The world knows that Nietzsche is dead, that Buddha and all the Hindu gods are dead. Only Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus lives. He lives. Our Savior lives. A struggling world is watching us right now, and as we think about our neighbors, let's show them that Jesus is alive. Let's show them the cross. Next week, we're going to be explicitly talking about what is our Christian response to our Muslim neighbors? We don't have it all figured out. That's okay. We're going to walk this together. And I am encouraged. 
I am very encouraged because I see revival for the North American church in the next 10 years because we had all these things swirling in culture that we couldn't quite put our fingers on. But now in this last election year specifically, it's come to the forefront and we know the culture has stated, this is what we think and this is what we think of you. Now we know. Now we can respond as evangelicals, as Christians, following our Lord and Savior. We're coming together in one genuine voice to a world that's struggling. I see the church living authentically. I see the church risking everything. I see the church as a beautiful bride, and I see the church uniting globally. I see the church dying to self so that others can live. We're not going to do this alone. Unity is essential. They will know we are disciples by our love for one another. It's not us against them in the church, and if we get that right, it's not us against them. It won't be us against them outside of the church. One church, not just Wyzetta, but churches from our city are uniting. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to pray for our Christian response. Encourage one another. Come alongside one another and show a struggling world that Jesus really is who he says he is. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. This week, let us boast in the cross of Jesus Christ.